Yes, let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of that you are our all in all. Lord, thank you for a group of people that want to come out on a Wednesday night after, for many of them, long day of work, um, lots of things going on in their life, but to set apart time to learn, to praise, to study of our all in all. You are it, Lord. I pray that you bless these folks, Lord. Give them strength. Those who are watching live now as we speak that aren't able to come, bless them, Lord, for taking time out of their life, and especially so many of them are, are battling issues, Lord, and we, we pray that you would just heal them, but thank you for them tuning in as well, Lord. It is a joy to take a few moments and just cry out truths to you. You are certainly our Savior. You are our righteousness. All these things have been said, Lord, and so much more. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you've been enjoying this series on the Ten Commandments, but I have. <laughs> uh, the preacher gets to probably enjoy them the most, but I really have been challenged by this study, and I've told Gina many times, I've said, I've never seen some of this stuff before, you know, and I've been studying for a lot of years, but, you know, you get down and you start drilling down into the truths of these commandments and realize how good they are for us. I've been saying over and over in this study that God's law and God's truths, his commandments given to us, both Old Testament and New Testament, are there to guide us to God, so we don't stray. It's easy to stray, Right? It's easy to be those who drift away from truth, drift away from the things of God. And so God has given his law not only to reveal us as sinners, I mean to reveal his character, but to fence us towards him, to keep us from drifting away. And these ten beautiful commands in which really, uh, as I'm studying further ahead, so much of the law comes out of these all the sundry laws and other laws that come from these are coming out of the heart of this. And so this, we've said this before, the Ten Commandments are the heart of the law. And then we've been really focusing in, particularly in these last few commands, and we will again tonight, is that the society that benefits from a group of people who hold and keep, not for their salvation, but hold and keep these Laws. These are great truths, and we see how society is held together, how the family is held together. And when the family falls apart, when dads fail to lead, particularly when there is no fathers in the home, when sins are committed against family or each other, um, society starts to fall apart. And I think we see that in so many ways. And so I hope you recognize that the effects of the Ten Commandments are so amazing on our families and on our society and how far we drift by them. But I always want to give the caveat that these do not save you in any way and we have to be so careful of that. We're not righteous because we keep the Ten Commandments. The, man, that young rich ruler who came to Jesus, I, I don't doubt at all that he was being extremely honest at least in his own opinion that he kept all these things from his youth but he went away terribly discouraged didn't he because they can't give you joy in and of themselves they can't save you they can't give you the righteousness you need to to have confidence in your life and that comes through Christ alone and so but we do see these as such an important thing so we're going to try to look at the seventh the eighth and the ninth today we'll see how we do here um, 
The seventh command for fellowship, you notice I've been kind of keeping that theme. Um, and I, and I, as more I study it, the more I realize that these commands help keep us in fellowship with him. Uh, you've heard me say this before. There's times we'll say, yeah, I, haven't, I, fell out of, I fell out of a walk with the Lord. I have not been in fellowship with the Lord like I should. People will say that. And it's often because, if not often, always because you got away from what God wanted you to do. You decided to sin, decided to not obey him, and you find yourself somewhere where you don't want to be. Well, these commands, 7, 8, 9, uh, fall into a lot of that as well. So let's, let's look at the seventh command, verse 14, Exodus chapter 20. Um, uh, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Well, the fifth commandment we talked about last week presents the family as a foundation of this well-ordered society that, that God wanted the Hebrews to have. And, and, if, and if society would learn to do that even today, that these things are built on where, where children honor parents, and, and just a little highlight here, we know when children honor parents, they, they honor everything from law enforcement to teachers to anyone else who's an authority in their life. Show me a child who honors their parents, I'll show you a child that, that is well-behaved in society as well. But if those are true, if, if that command to help society hold together that children honor parents is true, then when we get to the seventh command, which by God's divine choice, this requires a relationship between a husband and wife and here he's requiring two things that you really see come out of this. Faithfulness and love. He's requiring faithfulness and love. And if that's true, you're going to have a society that operates with much more security. It isn't hard to study what divorce has done, what infidelity has done, what uh, unfaithfulness has done to society. And I'll get into that more in a moment, but it's such an important thing to understand how a husband and wife bridge a gap between the understanding of loving God and people left to their own views of what God is like. See, God is a faithful God and a faithful husband and wife are the reasons why children will often obey when mom and dad see God as the God of the Bible, a God of grace and mercy, and yet, and yet one who does not compromise in all of his love and grace and mercy because he knows what's best for us, when mom and dad see that and they articulate that and particularly live that out to their children, there becomes this bridge of understanding who God is. Now, if mom and dad are, first of all, unfaithful to God and that's what always takes place before it's unfaithful to each other. Isn't that not correct? So if mom and dad are faithful to God, children look upon that, and they begin to see a faithful God that they believe in. They, they follow our lead over and over and over. Now, the biblical relationship between a husband and wife brings security to people that are around them. Uh, would you like to go to dinner with somebody who's been married for 60 years and sit and spend time talking to them about life? Or would you rather uh, spend, life, spend dinner with somebody who's practicing immorality and jumping from one bed to another? Who do you want to spend time with? Who do you want to gain knowledge from? Who do you want to find faithfulness with? 
That's, that, though, those people who commit to one another, and I know some of this is hard, because there's, I, I, I know many situations in here. I'm not pointing fingers, but it's so important we teach this, and, and so many of you who maybe have gone through these things, have repented of those things, and God's forgiven you, and, and he's blessed you with a new relationship or whatever, I hope that's true, but, it, but we have to talk about this, because we wonder why society, and, and for us, why the church is struggling so much. As the divorce rate in the church continues to pattern in, at not total levels, but f- follows the levels of the world, what happens is children look upon parents who are unfaithful and they can't get their mind around that there's a God who's faithful. And so God is this distant person who may or may not stay around in my life. It's, it's, it's a huge responsibility and, and I think one of the things we do is we look at these commands and we go, yeah, I know the Ten Commandments. But when you start to really drill down on these things, you go, my world is built on these things in a lot of ways. All tied together by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. But, but we realize why there's stability in homes. And, and look, there's many of us that have not been divorced that would tell you, hey, no, our homes are not perfect in any stretch of the means. But there is repentance and there's confession in there and there's, there's a striving to be right with God and be right with each other and God blesses that. Look, adultery and other immoral sins destroy the view of oneness. They destroy the view of oneness that God desires in marriage. You all remember in Genesis 2.24 when and God said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Well, the doctrine of oneness is extremely important. That's why God says things like he hates divorce. Because it shatters the view in, in people's eyes of the oneness of God. Throughout the Bible, he constantly talks about his marital relationship to his people. He tells us in places that he would never leave us nor forsake us for any reasons. So the doctrine of oneness is such an important thing. I tell couples as we premarital counsel, and hey, God is putting you together in a union. And Jesus himself says, let nobody tear that apart. He uses very strong words in the Greek. And you think about oneness. God takes a couple, a husband and wife, a man and a woman, and, and he puts them together in front of his eyes and the witness of him and family and friends and so forth. And he says they're one. And, and look, you start tearing people in half, there's scars, isn't there? You start ripping what God has put together, there's, there's difficulties, and, we, and some of you know that better than others. And you're there now trying to help people not fall into those sins, and I appreciate those things, but the doctrine of oneness is such an important thing. God is one. The Bible talks often about his oneness. He is one God, and we understand him in his, in his essence through his Son and the Spirit of God and the Father, and they, they share that essence, in that, in, but yet in person of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and yet they're always one. God never lets that division be. And then he, his relationship with us is the same. He, he says, look, I'm gonna, when I save you, I put you in Christ. I don't look at you ever apart from Christ. I've told so many couples in my office, God never looks at you individually anymore when you're married. You say, well, that's, you know, our whole world's about individuality, isn't it? The Bible's not about individuality. The Bible's about unity and oneness and a church family and, and, and people standing united for Christ. And so this is how the Bible speaks. And so the doctrine of oneness is such an important thing. Um, too many times I, as I deal with counseling issues, 
I will talk about oneness and it, it is so sad how many times people come in my office and said we never heard that in biblical counseling or had biblical counseling before we got married. And now we're in this and we're realizing we're, we're in difficulties. Look, what God puts together is done by his faithfulness and he joins you together and so oneness displays this this picture of God, it displays a picture of security. It displays a picture of faithfulness. When you read, thou shalt not commit adultery, you could read it this way. Be faithful. That's what God's telling us to do. Be faithful as I am faithful. Be faithful. What do we call when somebody cheats on somebody? We call it unfaithful, don't we? He says, be faithful. I'm faithful to you. I will not leave you. He's faithful. And so that's that challenge of it. When you look at just the scandalous nature of sexual sin between two people and, and at least one of them being married, even in the Old Testament days, the pagan nations saw it as bad. And, and for the longest time, America did. I think there's still stuff in, in military logs that having adultery in the military is still a, a, a fence where they can throw you out of the military. It's usually never actually acted on. There's still state laws in some of our states that if you commit adultery, you're going to be put in jail. They're trying to get those laws off their book. They're super old laws. and they, they, The people go, why, why is this even here? <laughs> people don't even understand why it's there. But you, you run no-fault divorce for the amount of years this country has run it. I mean, is the, is the words not just foolishness? <laughs> no fault accidents now. Sorry, Mike, wherever you're at in here. Some guy T-bones me, but I'm at a no fault. <laughs> so it's not your fault. You destroyed my car. You destroyed my life. You left me. You were unfaithful. No fault. See how the world does, deals with things? God doesn't say that. God wants us to be faithful. And you, we all saw this coming. Um, I think, I hope we did. You have sexual revolutions that begin to happen uh, in our society, 60s and 70s. Um, things that our parents and our grandparents probably never thought would happen began to happen in our nation. And, and then it became more free. We saw it more often. It was, it was individualism was promoted and uh, a life of self-promotion. You can be the best. We start handing trophies out for participation. <laughs> Everybody's a winner. Be whatever you want to be. Don't let anybody tell you that the desires of your heart that you could chase, and we're all, some of us are going, the desires of my heart are wicked. <laughs> and we just told the whole world, oh, little boy, do whatever you want. Whatever's in your heart, you can do. Christians didn't study their Bibles. And now we went from this individualism to accept it as sin of morality. Romans 1, you can just see the, the, the progression of it, the rejection of God and his truths, and then, and then the rejection of what God set up as family, and, and now it's moved to the, to the plotting, plotting of evilness. And if you don't stand with it, you will be eliminated. And so the practice is now forced upon us. And, and brothers and sisters, there's days coming, that, you know, and this is a, this is something that I pray your conscience continues to get pricked on things. But, you know, I mean, this week somebody's telling me Disney has come out with transsexual, you know, little kids on, on 
daytime TV for Disney. And who are you going to give your money to? I know this is hard because I, I wrote my notes Disney. Be careful because I know there are a lot of you who have ears on. Um, uh, and I'm not here to tell you not to support something, but you begin to think about this. Hayward stood on our, our platform here and told people, some of you started when this whole thing, the children's justice started putting, touting black screens and putting up stuff and you had no idea what the organization was really about. And he said, of course black lives matter. But that organization is godless. And Christians across the nation have stood with it and still stand with it. I heard today from a dear friend who said, there's Christians in his church voting for Biden. I, I'm very careful here because we're getting ourselves in trouble too far. But listen, there, uh, no matter who you like or don't or what he does or doesn't do, there is no way humanly possible, friend, brother, and sister, you can vote for people who allow the murder of children. It's just impossible. It's, it's, and I... And I know, I know our youth, our youth, you know, new youth that are here, are meaning you students and college age and young adults and so that are here, you have great teachers, and I know they're directing you in this way, but the movement is coming from your age group. And you guys are going to take it on the chin when you stand up for this stuff. We can't slaughter the unborn. And you can't stand with people who do. This is where it is gone. It's a lack of faithfulness. And see, you begin to look at this command and God is saying, be faithful. If you are with me, if you are my people, my people are faithful people. Look, it doesn't mean that we don't sin at times and, or maybe we thought we were in the faith and we weren't. And our flesh was still very much in control of us. But God's asking for faithfulness. And I look at this command, and it's so much more than, well, I'm just not gonna sleep with anybody other than my wife. This command's built on faithfulness. I will be found faithful by the strength of God when he shows up. It's a commitment to that. And, and there might be people in here or listening on or watching on, and you're struggling with your spouse and and maybe even tempted or you're hurt by something they have done or not done or, or whatever, remain faithful on your part. God report, remain, he, he loves and rewards faithfulness. Look, sexual immorality was practiced by all the pagan nations around the nation of Israel. It was what they were marked by. I mean, it's, it was so invested in their Religion, And so the world looks at religion where there's sexual immorality and they gravitate to it. There's no reason, I mean, there's this clear reason why these quotes, some of these Christian churches who have opened their doors to every immoral practice that allows people into that, why people flock there. Because now I can, I can have a relationship with God and live the way my heart wants to live. Well, you're always gonna grow religion that way. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter Six with me. This is a problem in the New Testament church. It, and I've talked about Corinth quite a bit. You, I think you have a, a fair understanding of how immoral and godless. On the West Coast, we called Corinth the San Francisco of the day. You know, It had all the ports. Everything came through there. Everything that was immoral and godless somehow was paraded on and, and 
and praised and glorified. And Paul's got a church planet there. <laughs> and it's a difficult church. You, you understand, he, we know of two inspired letters. We know of at least two more he wrote that are re- referred to in these letters. They certainly weren't inspired, but they were probably good stuff. Because he's dealing with a rebellious church, a church that's allowed immorality in it. Chapter 5, right before we get to chapter 6, you have a man living, sleeping in an immoral relationship with his mother-in-law. And the church allows it. They are not dealing with it. And, and I mean, when you read this, Paul just comes out of his boots or his sandals or whatever he wore. Me, it's my boots. He can't believe they've done this. <laughs> he goes right to step four with them. He just goes, I've already put him out. You failed to discipline this. Your church has in, in, got the hand of God upon it. I've already taken care of this. I've already put him out because this church has been godless and not done, dealt with immorality that has worked its way in there. And it doesn't mean, look, when we talk, talk about church discipline, people just think that we're running around looking for people who are doing bad things. We hate, I don't want to use the word hate. I do not like church discipline. <laughs> it is the most difficult thing there is on elders. But we realize that God is serious about it because he wants a church that's pure and right and faithful before him. And so we practice church discipline, and many of you have watched us do that. But Paul says, I'm already done with this. You guys are way behind. I've already put this man out. And he gets into leaven in the lump, and you put a little leaven in this, and starts working his way. And and isn't that what's happened with what we call a liberal Christian church of today? Somebody opened the door and said, well, you know, maybe it was Adam and Steve. And, And that door got opened. And then they allow this and that. And then, well, they're just exercising who they are inside. And God loves them inside. And, and I mean, all this flowery stuff. And, and they reject clear principles. And pretty soon, they're gone. They're unfaithful. But look at verse, chapter 6, verse 9. You know these passages, right? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Just a plain statement. Are you, are you unaware that unrighteous people don't go to heaven? The lost don't go to heaven. Only the righteous go to heaven. Don't read any farther. I just want you to understand this. If you do not have the righteousness of Christ on you, dressed in righteousness of Christ, meaning free from all our sins because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was imputed to us. If you don't have that, you'll never go to heaven. That's why we believe in salvation by Christ alone, through his word alone, and by his glory alone, through his grace alone, through his faith alone, and so forth. We believe in that because there's no way we can do it. I'm born unrighteous. I was an unrighteous person. God had to make me righteous through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he wants us to remind ourselves because they got accustomed to people living in unrighteousness among the church. He or him, he or her is sitting over there. They're not, they're just in the church. They're living an immoral lifestyle. Nobody's dealing with it. So Paul, somebody has to say something because apparently the leaders in the church has done nothing about it. He says, don't you know this? And then he starts to define, don't be deceived. Oh, isn't that a great statement? So many churches are deceived now. They're in full deception of who goes in the narrow gate. And the gate isn't narrow anymore. <laughs> that, they just bulldoze that gate. 
It's as wide as the freeway heading into Las Vegas. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters or adulterers, there's our word right there, brought over into the Greek, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you and I all fell into there somewhere, didn't we? Because you may look at this list and go, whoa, boy, that's not a list. Well, covet got you. <laughs> you may have not fallen into some immorality. Maybe by God's grace and his mercy in your life, you've lived a, a, a life of faithfulness to the Lord in those areas. But I'll guarantee you, commandment number 10 takes us all out. Because there's always something we covet instead of the things of God at times. But notice this list. It's very clear. This is a, this is a list of unfaithful people. But even though covetous, those that are of us that are covetous, we've coveted in our life. And, and, and if our life was based on that right now, we would not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the level of immorality that's in this list. It's a very serious thing to God. God saved us. I want you to think about this. God saved us, purified us. The word, just chase that word down in the Greek or in the New Testament English of how he purified. When he purified us, he sat down by the right hand of the Father. There's terms like that all the time. So he doesn't purify us for us to live impure lives. <laughs> that doesn't make sense, right? He, now, it doesn't mean that we're perfect in this life here, we still struggle along in it, but we pursue, we pursue our purity that God saved us in. It's such an important thing to him. But, but again, notice the list. Fornicators, idolaters, that, that probably got most of us there, idolaters as well. And most of these sexual sins got us in one way or another. We've l- lusted after something that wasn't ours. I mean, we're probably all in this. But right in the middle of this is an adulterer, someone who's been unfaithful. You say, well, what is effeminate? Well, the Greek word goes back to one who really dress, a man who dresses like a woman. Well, that's a big problem today. You say, the Bible isn't relevant. Well, I think it's pretty relevant. Man doesn't fall far from the tree, does he? And all of these. Now, now, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. You won't go to heaven if this is how you're found. If you're found in these sins, which is unrighteous, if you're found there, it shows you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows you're not saved. It shows that there wasn't a true conversion that took place. There wasn't this grace that, led by faith, brought you to repentance and restored you in a right position before God for all of eternity. It just shows it didn't happen. If these things consistently lie in your life, now look at verse 11. You go, well, I want to be faithful. Well, first of all, it's God who makes you faithful. Look what he did. Such were some of you. Now notice it doesn't say, but I was washed and I was sanctified and I was justified. Notice the terms, but you were washed. <laughs> That's me and you. We were washed away. Our sins were washed away by the finished work of Jesus Christ. We were sanctified, meaning we were set apart. God set us apart. Oh, praise God for that. If he doesn't set us apart, brothers and sisters, we would never be set apart. We'd be on that whole group heading for the cliff. Just the masses just working their way to eternal damnation. He sets us apart. He says, you are no longer in my enemy's camp. You are no longer belong to the one who works in the sons of disobedience. You are now my child. I adopt you. I make you like mine. I wipe out your past as though it does exist. You now belong to me. I've adopted you. I've set you apart. You're mine. That's what he does. 
And remember, all of us are in that previous list, one way or another. Then he says, you're justified. Now, all these things are happening to us at salvation. He says, you're declared righteous. Remember the first part of the verse says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, this, verse just, this word justified is such an important word. We know this, don't we, students? Justified tells me that God declared me righteous so that I can stand in the presence of a righteous God for all of eternity. And I love that phrase, such for some of you. Well, you can look at this phrase and start thinking about all kinds of people on the news or whatever you see, but you better think about yourself. You better think about what God has done. He's washed me, sanctified me, justified me in the name, in the person, in the glory, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then identified me by the Spirit of God. He placed a spirit within me. Look, that alone tells us, do not participate in godless things. The Spirit of God is with you. And he, of course, he goes into that as he goes on. You know, what are you going to take the Spirit of God into the temple of the prostitute? We're identified in Christ now. And so we're completely changed. And this is this glorious thing. But what I love about this is, yes, we were once unfaithful. But now we are faithful people because God saved us. Changed us. He planted faith into us so we could believe and repent and turn to him. Now we stand righteous. And let me just say, the first part of the verse, it says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the earth? Well, let me say it this way. The righteous do inherit the kingdom of God. The righteous inherit the kingdom of God. And that isn't righteous. Boy, when you say righteousness, if if we're not Bible students in here, you're gonna think, then all the good things I do, I get to go to heaven. But you and I know that that did not come that way. Left to ourselves, our righteousness are like what? Filthy rags. They're worthless. So you, know, you and I know that he's talking about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that beautiful? Look at Galatians chapter 5. Just go over to your right just a bit. Galatians 5.19. We'll start there. Paul loves to contrast things. He just loves to show the contrast of life that is unfaithful, life that is unrighteous, and then a life that is faithful and a life that is righteous. And of course he does it here with the Galatian church as well. Verse 19, chapter five of Galatians. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. That includes that whole list, fornication, adultery, effeminate, homosexual, all that stuff falls underneath that character. Impure, it falls under there, sensuality falls under there. He's summing all that up. Then he goes in idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, boy, I wish you wouldn't have thrown that one in, disputes, dissents, infractions, envying, envying, ooh, there's another one easy for Christians to fall into, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, there's the word, I've not been freed from them. This is my life. I've not been freed from these. And then he says, such will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, <laughs> don't you love his conjunctions? I mean, you just stop a sermon, you walk off the stage after that. I mean, what would you do? <laughs> well, I'm done. But, <laughs> but the fruit of the Spirit, that's what you get when you get saved. He plants his own spirit into your life. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's different. That is not sexual immorality and seeking, oh, I just want to be loved by someone. That's not what that is. That's God's agape love now shining out in us. In fact, many people who study this passage believe love is the overarching principle and everything's flowing from that. I'm not sure that's true, but it's a good thought. <laughs> love. What comes next? Joy. See, people who are freed from their sins have joy. People who are not practicing it anymore. Doesn't mean we don't stumble a time or two in our in our just our selfishness at times, but those who stumble are like Peter who weep bitterly. Those who are lost are like Judas. They have no resort. They hang themselves in, in all kinds of troubles. But here, it's, it's a person who now has been identified. They're, they're marked with the Spirit of God. We're branded by him. He has now planted himself within us. There's love, there's joy, there's peace, there's patience, there's kindness, there's goodness, and there is what? Faithfulness. That's the word I'm after. Adultery is unfaithful. God says a nation of adulterers will never be faithful to me because they can't even be faithful to another human. So he says what's good for society is to be faithful people. And if you fail, and if you're, if you're here today, and this is very hard to hear, and you have never got on your knees before God, even, and maybe you believe you're a believer in here, repent, get on your knees and, and ask God to forgive you. If you already have, you, and you feel some struggles there, say, God, thank you for forgiving me for this. Don't let Satan use it as an old tool either. I know we hit on a lot of this stuff sometimes, and, and I have to remind, remind myself when Satan tempts you or your flesh likes to kind of say, yeah, you, you really, you're really not that good. God forgave me, God forgave me for that. He forgave me for that. Christ died for that. And I'll repeat that to myself and those temptations to believe that will go away. Because he's made me faithful now. See, the fruit of the Spirit isn't the fruit of Scott. Not the fruit of Gary. Not the fruit of John. It's the fruit of the Spirit. See, the problem is you and I try to produce our own fruits and then we get in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> That's legalism. <laughs> That comes off really bad. We're all worried about keeping everybody else in line because we want our fruits out there. It is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what he does. He makes you a lover. He makes you faithful and patient and kind and and all of those things. He does that with you. That's what he produces in our life. You take a nation of people who love the flesh, love immorality, and want freedom to express their immorality and their impurity and their sensuality. They want freedom. They do not see that as condemning in any way. And they want to live their life and be angry and mad and strife. They want jealousy. They don't want anybody to tell them it's wrong. They do not want to be arrested. They do not want any of those things. They do not want anybody to have authority over them. Your society will crumble. And God knew that of the nation of Israel. And it isn't hard to study the nation of Israel. I, I love the Old Testament. I read it every day. Because it's such a picture of humanity and the grace of God. And you just watch them. You're going, come on, hang on. I don't even know the story, but I'm still rooting for him. Come on, repent. Burn the idols. I just got done reading Josiah. And he, he, 
he, he's eight years old, becomes king. In the first 10 years, he starts to figure out, and this is not what Father David did. He starts to bring out everything. He finds the bones of the priests that led the nation into Baal worship and stuff. So he grinds their bones, then he grinds the powder, the idols into powder, and he puts them on, and he burns them all. <laughs> and he throws them outside the, the city. Then somebody comes from, Hilkiah comes from the priest and says, hey, we found this book. He goes, well, what is it? Well, as far as we can tell, it's the, it's the word of God. It's the law. What? <laughs> Read it to me. He's just reading it to Josiah, and Josiah tears his clothes and, and repents. And Oh, and God, this nation's just about ready to go off the cliff, and God holds them for another round, just for one more. Josiah's the last. And for 41 years, God lifts his hand from being against the nation of Israel and gives them life for a little while. But then Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and those guys come and here comes Nebuchadnezzar because God says, Nebuchadnezzar is my man, he's coming to crush you. And they were given time and time again because look, they were unfaithful people. Now we know and believe that God still has a role for Israel. I think he's gonna display, uh, display his grace in such a mighty way in the end to an undeserving remnant someday. And that's what he did with us. But this just teaches us he loves faithfulness. And I couldn't, I couldn't get that term out of my mind as I was studying this command. God loves faithfulness. He produces faithfulness in us. My faithfulness to Gina is the result of God in my life. And I give him credit for that. Because you and I, we know how bad we can be, can't, don't we? You know. If, you, if God takes his hands off of you and, you're, and takes away your desire to love for him, that spirit within you, that's why David said, please don't take your spirit from me. I saw what happened when you took it from Saul. Utter destruction come. Don't take your spirit from me. And of course, we don't believe loss of spirit because that'd be a loss of salvation, but we know how important that is in our life. It produces faithfulness. Let me just read a few more verses here. Gentleness, self-control. What a beautiful set of fruit that is. And then notice this last phrase in verse 23. Against such things there is no law, i.e. law cannot create the fruits of the Spirit. And if you've ever been in legalistic churches or been around someone legalistic or you were legalistic because we all have a little bit of a Pharisee in us, I promise you when you act like a Pharisee, you are not full of love, you are not joyful because you're too busy working around everybody else's problems. And you get ticked off because these group of people aren't doing this and the kids are running to the church and they're, you know, on and on and on and on. And man, we've got all kinds of stuff going on. There's no joy or love. You follow the law, you would, not, you would be a terrible husband. You want to just go try to live your life by the, by the law because the Bible says here, law can't produce us. Instead of surrendering to the Spirit of God in your life, you, husbands in here, you want to love your wife correctly, surrender to the Spirit of God in your life. Because you're not going to love her. And love will grow old and tired, and unfaithfulness will be barking in your back ear. Love God. Love the Spirit. Give Him freedom in your life. You know, the Bible says don't quench the Spirit. And the word is, the word we if we brought it into more modern day English, means sequester. 
So like a jury is sequestered, they're locked away. So it can't have any influence on anything else. It's locked away. And that's what, that's what happens to Christians sometimes. We, we sequester the spirit of God so he can't have influence in our other lives. We let him out on Sunday morning because, you know, I gotta go to BFG because they've really been pushing that. And I gotta pick a service to get involved. And, and I need to serve somewhere because that's what Christians do at Riverbend. But then on Monday, or maybe as soon as you get out of the parking lot, get back in your room, spirit, because now I'm running the show. I've had men tell me, go, Pastor, that's a good sermon, but I still have to have a job and a business on Monday. And all the things you talk about don't work in this world. Yeah, God's really small, I know. Good luck out there. No, he wants every ounce of us. Um, that's why Paul says, in a way, be drunk with the Spirit. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's talking about a drunk man. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation, right? But he says, be filled with Spirit. So if you pull blood out of a drunk man's pinky or his toe or the back of his head, you're going to see alcohol because it's filled him. In such is the way that God wants the Spirit to fill all of the rooms of our life, all of the activities of our life. And then we will be found faithful. Be found faithful. God's bond between himself and his people have always been compared to marriage. You find it with God in Israel, and boy, do you find it in Ephesians 5, don't you? Husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church, who gave himself for her. I mean, just beautiful. Just Men, that verse should just roll off our tongues as we've thought and meditated on it and prayed for it in our lives. We should, we should never forget Ephesians 5.25. We know that, men, we know that. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Gave himself for it. That should just be rolling off our tongue. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as an act of worship to the Lord. Embody that role of the church as it adores Christ. Take that on. Be faithful as a picture of the church to Christ. Demonstrate to the church what the church needs to look like, ladies. Men, demonstrate to the church what Christ looks like. Today we think about adultery and divorce and we see the rampantness of it and we just begin to realize why society is just destroyed. There's no dads in the homes anymore. We see them on the weekends or if that. There's nobody there to teach faithfulness from a male point of view. Let's take a peek at the next one. Oh, I could go on and on about that one. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. I get writing on these and thinking about them, and I said, Lord, this just floods through all of Scripture. You want a faithful people who follow you. Don't let me get lost in this commit adultery. I, I pray by the grace of God I never do that, and I don't want to do that, and never want to be found in that. And so you can just say, well, I'm, I'm a good Christian. I've been married to Gina 32 years. You know, I, I'm not going to do that. Well, that's a problem. But what he, what's the bigger problem is he wants faithfulness. And I start looking at this. He wants faithfulness. He wants faithfulness. This verse applies greatly to me. Be faithful. So that, Does that make sense? I think the, the Ten Commandments just become such more beautiful to us as New Testament, New Covenant Christians, right? They become grander to us when we start to say, he's talking about faithfulness. And so we just don't brush over them in our Bible reading. Oh, hey, I remember the Ten Commandments, finally a little short verses. <laughs> do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, so forth. All right, 15. Let's see if we can take on stealing for a second here. Um, think about the sin of stealing here. Uh, the Eighth Command says do not steal. 
And just think about the situation of Israel, where they're at. I love to put things in historical context first. Understand what it was written to, who it was written to, why it was written, and, and all, the, all the ramifications. You have this nation of Israel that at the time of the giving of the law, that there's nomadic people. They're living in tents with close proximity, right? You've got to be able to trust your neighbor. This is a big issue, isn't it? You've got to trust your neighbor. It's a huge part of society for this nation. And, and think about this command when trust is gone, people stop loving their neighbors. Right? It, I don't, don't raise a hand here, but have you ever had a bad neighbor? I have a really good couple of neighbors. They're both in this room. Um, and I love them to death. But have you ever had a bad neighbor where you didn't know what they were up to over there? <laughs> You're bolting doors, you know, and you just don't know. So there's a, there's a lack of trust there in and man, if push came to shove, what, is this guy going to come in and steal? I mean, I don't know. See how God wanted trust. See, see, when I look at these, here's another command, thou shalt not steal. What do I think of? God wants trust. He wants trust in his people. That's what he's after. And so the greatest of command was to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength and might, right? But the next was like it, the Bible says, to love your what? neighbors yourself so there was a trust he wanted the nation to trust one another to trust one another and, and and this is the result of loving god there's a desire to love one another i i honestly feel the most safe around you gina will tell you i'm, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe is that true gina i'm kind of a little bit of a germaphobe i mean i go to disney i'm like i just want to jump in a vat of uh you know anti whatever that stuff is I get around you and all I want to do is hug you, shake your hands. I just, I have such trust when I'm with you. I want to be with you. I want you to come into my home. I want to go to lunch with you. I want to ride in your car. I'm not afraid of your germs. <laughs> I love you. Now I will wash my hands when I get done. I'm just shaking all your hands. But, uh, <laughs> but there's a trust. Isn't that beautiful? That God wants that in his people that we trust one another. And when a society loses trust, all kinds of problems happen. Now, now think about this. When, our, when we love our stuff so much, more than we love God, that reveals a heart condition, right? So some people don't trust because they have a heart of idolatry towards their things. And they don't want anybody to steal it or take it. And so, because that's their idol, and they gotta really protect that. And so I gotta buy six more guns and, and I gotta have a you know ADT out here. I mean, we gotta lock down like Fort Knox. Maybe because it's an idol, maybe. And I, I know you're gonna throw the stewardship card at me. We'll get to that here in a minute. Because everybody does, well, stewardship, stewardship. Yeah, protect your idol. But then, but then there's also. The fact that when we don't care about the things of others, we also display a very darkness in our life. And that's what stealing is. You don't care about other people. When you talk to thieves uh, through the years, counseling, you can imagine all the stuff that comes through your office through the years. Well, why would you steal? Well, that person, they have plenty. You know, you heard all these things, right? They, they deserve it. They've done things to other people, so they get, you know, you know, just comes around, goes around. You know, they'll say stuff like that. I say, you don't love your neighbor, do you? You have no love for your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Everyone's your neighbor. 
in a society, we're all neighbors. And the Bible says for us to love our neighbors. And so this command starts to talk about trust, and it's talking about loving your neighbor so much. The scriptures are clear. All things belong to God, right? The scriptures are clear. We believe that, don't we? Everything we have, the person sitting next to you, your breath, <laughs> all the things we have, then start materials, cars, homes, kids. I mean, just start working your way through that. All things belong to the Father. We know that. The Bible teaches us it's very clear, it all belongs to him. And we're entrusted with the stewardship of, of an earthly resources that he gives us. God owns them, but he lets us take care of them for a little bit. We keep track of these things. So we must respect the way God has distributed things to other people. And so when you steal something, one, um, you've broken trust, Two, you took something that actually belonged to God and you did not trust that person with what God gave them to take care of. You've robbed them of what God gave them. Boy, that goes a lot deeper than just don't steal, does it? Now, God has given some more and he's given some others less, but it all belongs to God. So to steal is to take an unauthorized possession of what does not belong to you, but belongs to God that somebody else is managing. And you broke trust. The word steal, ganab is the Hebrew word for it. It's an interesting word. It's used in, a lot, uh, the root word of this is used in different places, but basically it comes up with the idea of deception. There's words, it's a really interesting word. It has the idea of, of living a life of stealth if that makes sense. That's what thieves do, right? They're stealthy. A good pickpocket, you never know he was there. He just comes by and pretty soon you're going, what? Did I leave my wallet somewhere? They're just stealthy. And then it has this word of deception to it. Their goal is deceive. And it's clear that the command here was written of the heart of man. Look, this breaks trust. This is, and this is in everyone. It's in every culture. It's, it's, Everyone knows it's wrong to break trust, to steal something. I mean, it's not hard to look through the cultures of the world. I mean, some places they cut the hand off. I mean, every culture of the world they know. And here's why you know. You can go with me in the deepest, dark jungles of Philippines with me, and they got bars on their window. And I go, Nilo, why is your house like a cage? I've never seen anybody around it. We're out here in the banana orchards, you know, because <laughs> there's thieves everywhere. We have no police. And the third world is just locked down. We'll be there soon. <laughs> Get, start ordering your bars and your Rottweilers. Um, uh, the, the world's just locked down because there is no trust. And brothers and sisters, when people walk into this building with us, they should feel the safest. We are people who are trustworthy now. God has made us trustworthy. And you still might have wanted to lock your car out there, but we got guys roaming around in golf carts and we're trying to do our best because there are, we know what man is like. But you're safe here. My keys are sitting on the seat over there. <laughs> Gina goes, where's your wallet? I, go, I think I left it on my desk. She goes, left your wallet on the desk? I go, yeah. But Gabriel's running things around here and I know he cleans my office and I trust him. No, I don't mean to do it. I'm just dumb. I walked out without it. Now, I wouldn't do that somewhere else. I want this church to be a trustworthy church. I want us to be a, a group of people that say, 
we don't steal because God rescued us and, and we're trustworthy. We're trusted with these things. And, and you know, trust goes right into the next things, envy. We don't envy. And that's, that's a difficult one because that can't be seen because you might park out there and somebody may, you know, you may pull into your, you know, with your 1970 gremlin <laughs> and somebody pull in, you know, with, you know, a little nicer car that's made in Germany. And they may be a concern that you might open your gremlin door and hit their door. And so they park a little more over. Don't be envious. God gave you a gremlin. Be a good steward of that gremlin until he gives you something else. See, it's hard to do that, isn't it, though? Right? Because in our flesh, we envy things, and, and so we break trust. Envy, envy leads to a desire, and desire leads to, well, maybe I'll take something that doesn't belong to me. See, when theft is prevalent and unpunished, the life of the community is disturbed and unsecure. I mean, if you live in Chicago right now, New York, places in California, places around the world, I mean, it's scary. We're talking to people there. I mean, they're, they're asking us for prayer. The churches are asking us to pray for them. It's unsecure. The police have been run off you want to live in Portland? You want to go? Uh, we just passed through Portland just a couple months ago to see our grandson. Before all this started, it was a, you could just see it all. The, they're just living on the highways and they're just waiting for something to erupt. And of course, now they're just shooting people and no one's doing anything about it. And it's just godlessness, right? Breaking stores and taking people. People's businesses are shot, gone. All of their livelihood passed down from their parents, from grandparents to the parents to them is gone. Trust has been broken, and a community is a disaster. You know, we had the great grace of raising our boys on our ranch. We lived in Modoc County, right in the corner, and you want to look up on the map, right where Nevada T-bones, California-Nevada line T-bones into Oregon. We were right in that corner. Six miles from Oregon, three miles from Nevada. We lived in a community that was so isolated. I remember my brothers coming up from the San Francisco Bay Area and we'd go to town and you know there's a little cafe there and stuff and we'd walk down and there's just pickups right there's guns hanging in the pickups and the windows are down and I go walk down and see how many keys are in the car I go there's 10 pickups see how many in there 9 out of 10 of them had keys in them he goes this is unheard of why why does this happen here I said because there's trust here and, and, and we had some theft every once in a while because we didn't even know where the keys to our house was we, when we sold the house we said look you Where's the keys? Well, do you want to lock it out here 10 miles from the nearest neighbor? Because when they break your windows, no one's going to hear it anyway. You just want them to go in and get and not break the windows out. Because it was just so isolated. But that rarely, rarely happened. And we, every once in a while, something would happen. Somebody, someone would break something or, or break in or something would happen. And it was just an uproar in that community. Because society had been shaken. Trust had been broken. That community was so used to living in that, that time capsule of, of unchanged there and just... You know, everybody knows everybody. Everybody waves to everybody. Everybody knew everybody. And I remember thinking when there was a, there was a break-in in town, which was only 50 people, but um, there was a break-in, and the town was so upset. They were so bothered by it. And I thought, trust has been broken. Now, when you think about don't steal, there's so many things. I gotta end with this, and we're gonna start, we're gonna come back to the middle of this next time. But, I mean, start thinking about fraud, don't steal, this goes beyond that. We're thinking about stealing, you know, the Three Musketeers bar when we're kids. 
I mean, still goes so, it still goes so far beyond that. Now you're talking about fraud scams. My brother, Tim, who's an elder at Tony's church um, in California, he's a financial aid guy, and he said, there's nothing that's hurt us worse, us, us honest men who deal honestly with God, with, with people's money and God's money, than the scams and the Bernie Madoffs and so forth that come. He says, it just destroys the trust of the people for us to try to help them be ready for retirement or whatever it may be. Embezzlement. How often we've heard about embezzlements from schools, churches, all kinds of organizations. Extortion. These are all parts of stealing. And then get personal here. How about waste of time? People steal from their employees all the time by not giving them the hours that they're being paid for. They don't work hard and they're not working for God. They're working for themselves and they're frustrated with whatever their job is and so they take it out on the employer so they steal time. How about stealing purity? Mm, that's a when it gets in close, doesn't it? Purity belongs to God and in some cases and dads would think the purity of their daughters belong to them right now. How about that? You know sex trafficking is in child Uh, theft is on its all-time high right now and nothing's being said about it. They're they're stealing children, putting duct tape over their face and putting a mask on them and walking right out with them because everybody's wearing a mask. Uh, We were reading something. It's an amazing statistic. It's, it's, It's off the chart how many children are being stolen right now. It, it just breaks your heart. And so what happens? I'm looking at some moms in here. You start, you're careful with your children, aren't you? And you should be. Where are they? I mean, how many of us grew up? Key around our neck, bicycle, gone. <laughs> Mom said, don't come back till it's dark. <laughs> Do you not want me to here, Mom? Riding the streets of the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up doing that on my, on my bike. I wouldn't let my kids do that if, <laughs> for Nothing. See, trust has been broken. Let's, let's close with one passage. I've got to do this real quick. Exodus chapter 25. 22. Sorry. I got a little rambling today, but these are, these are just really fun to study, aren't they? And it helps you realize why my life can be a mess and then why society is a mess. When, as we get farther into Exodus, I'm not going to teach every passage as we go along. I'm going to sum up different things. But I thought this passage would help you understand the ramifications of stealing each type of of theft the bible distinguishes in different ways and different characteristics and he deals with this he says if it verse 1 chapter 22 if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and or or sells it he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep i like that idea you steal my car i want four (laughs) do you think they're going to keep stealing cars Two, if a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltness on his account. Come into my house, (laughs) they're going to drag you out. (laughs) I mean, the Bible is saying there's a self, there's a defense. I mean, the Bible knows the wickedness of man, and so there's a defense put in here, right? Verse three, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he, is, if, if he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, 
whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. See, there's restitution being made here. If a thief lets a field or a vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animals loose so that it grazes in another man's field, let me put this into days for you non-ranching people. If their dog comes over and does its business in your yard, <laughs> for us in the cattle world, someone sticks their cattle in your field and eats down your grain field, that, your hay field, that, that is your income, that's what he's talking about here. Then he should pay more. If he starts a fire in verse six and burns all this stuff down, he, he shall make restitution. If, your neighbor gives, uh, if you give your neighbor money and goods to keep for him, and it is stolen from his house. If the thief is caught, he shall pay double. And if the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before judges to determine whether he, he laid his hands on the neighbor's property, whether he was involved with it or not. It just, there's just justice, and I just got to quit because we're running late here, but I love this, and I start reading this, and I go, man, if we just do some of this, these problems would end. Well, what do we do? We're letting prisoners out like the hordes out of, out of our prison system right now. And our children in, in danger, and everybody's in danger, and there's a loss of trust in society, and so now the Mayberry that many of you, you and I were raised in is gone. And now we have all kinds of problems because people are unfaithful and they're untrustworthy, but not Christians. We're faithful because Christ was faithful to us. We're trustworthy because we teach a Christ who can be trusted. That's the difference, right? That's who we are. And may we strive to be that. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we didn't get very far, but we just love studying your word and realizing how applicable it is to our life. You knew what society needed. And you knew Israel was gonna fall away and worship other gods. And yet you installed these laws because you love them. You were trying to direct them towards you, trying to give them life and society and where things would work, Lord. And yet they, like so many people, rebelled against you. And Lord, I pray, as people walk in this door, they would find faithful people. Forgiven, we're, we've all sinned, and, and this list gets very close to home, Lord, but we're forgiven, faithful people. And Lord, we're trustworthy. People come to our church where I think we've proved to them we love your children, and we have a system to check them in and check them out because we're trustworthy. We want to protect your children. We want you to feel safe here. We're thankful for our men who watch over us and keep our doors here while we're in service and watch over our parking lot. But inside here, Lord, we're trustworthy. People are not going to steal from you, Lord, Lord willing. So, Lord, I, that's a reflection of the gospel in our life. And I pray that we would be men and women, boys and girls, that are faithful and trustworthy. Lord, if there's someone in this room that this has hit in a hard way, Lord, maybe they have been unfaithful and they're not right with you. I pray that they will take care of that tonight, Lord. May the, may the hour not go by that they have not repented and turned from that sin, Lord. And Lord, it would be real and there would be fruit in their life and they would really love with an agape love now. They'd have joy and peace in their life, Lord. Lord, if there's those who steal in this room who have, have robbed really from you, God, because all things belong to you, that they would be convicted of that, Lord, and stop stealing and as we'll see next week, Lord, we'll see instead of stealing, we now become productive citizens who give back and serve others, Lord. That shows that change has taken place, that we've been forgiven. So Lord, help us be faithful, trustworthy, Christ-loving Christians.
Lord, that's what you've asked us to be. No matter how our world goes, how bad it gets, Lord, it seems to be sliding quickly, Lord. May we be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.